and turn with me this morning to 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy 2 this morning, looking at verses 1 through 8. First of all, there are a number of things that we are charged to do in the assembly of the church. The Bible tells us in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11, that God gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers. And then in verse 12, he specifically says that he gave these things to the church for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. By this we know that the body of Christ is designed to be built up in sound doctrine and teaching. We know that many other elements are designed into the body of Christ. In 1 Timothy, uh, we will see a charge a little bit later on to help those widows who are widows indeed. We'll talk about what that means when we get there. We know from Galatians chapter 6 that we are called to bear one another's burdens and so to fulfill the law of Christ. We are told in Romans 12 that we are to weep with those that weep, that we are to rejoice with those that rejoice, that we are to honor and prefer one another. We're told in 1 Corinthians 11 that the body is to fellowship together around the table of our Lord to show his death until he come. We're called in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 19. We're called in Colossians chapter 3, verse 16 to teach and admonish one another in psalms and in hymns and in spiritual songs. All of these are the function of the assembly. And indeed, many of these we have even experienced this morning as we have sung together, as we have memorized the scriptures together and as we have fellowship together around the Lord. But there is one charge which is given a preeminent position in the church. And this is what we're going to study today. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1, the Bible says this, I exhort therefore that first of all supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men. Paul spent chapter 1, recall, speaking specifically to Timothy about sound doctrine. The danger that various misinterpretations or mispresentations of the scriptures pose to the church. Now in chapter 2, Paul is turning his attention toward the function in the assembly. And we're going to start by seeing the function of the assembly as it relates to prayer. And then over the next several weeks, we're going to be talking about uh, the role of women in the assembly. And he says, first of all, God's people need to lift up their voices in prayer unto God. Now, this idea of first of all in, in the text can be understood in a couple of different ways. It could be that Paul is labeling this exhortation unto prayer as the first thing that he's mentioning, that the first thing he's going to mention as it relates to the church assembly is prayer. It could also, to that end, be uh, the idea, as we think of the idea of first in order or first in time, the idea that he says, when you come together, the first thing you should do is pray. Both of those are possible interpretations. It could also mean that Paul is saying, as, as he gives this exhortation, that the most important or the preeminent thing that they are to do as they come together in the assembly is to pray. So that first there can mean first in time or first in order, but can all, it can also mean first in importance or first in preeminence, in priority. That above anything else, they are exhorted, them, uh, exhorted first to pray. 
And it seems as though, from the way that Paul presents these ideas, that this is the idea that, that, that Paul is exhorting them unto here. That when you come together, first of all, very importantly, highest in priority, you need to pray for all men. And that is what we see as we continue considering this verse. Not just that it is to be the first of all things that they do, but then he starts to talk about what it is that he's calling them unto do. Unto or, or to do. And there are four particular elements here. The concept of praying, four particular elements of this idea of praying that are presented. The first one that we see is supplications. This word here speaks of making petitions, of asking for things. The idea is that we are acknowledging before God our need for Him and God's ability to meet that need. The essential admittance of our need for God is a very large part of the exercise of prayer. One of the things that has been uh, interesting to me, particularly when I go to the jail and I teach the people that are in the jail about prayer, is one of the things that comes up quite often is they say that, that the, especially the young Christians, they say that they have a hard time asking God for things because they feel like it's selfish. They feel like it's selfish to ask God for the things that they desire or that they need. And there are some ways in which it could be. And James covers those ways when he says, you have not because you ask not, you ask and receive not, because you ask amiss, that ye may consume it upon your lusts. But there are any other, uh, any number of other reasons why we might be hesitant to ask God for things. For some of us, it, it might be a pride thing. We don't want to admit that we need anything or we want to maintain a veneer of self-sufficiency. For some of us, it's guilt. Asking for help admits that we made bad choices or that we aren't good enough or that we can't do it on our own. For some of us, it's, it's a care thing, as I mentioned. As James warns us to ask properly, some of us are simply hesitant to ask because we are afraid that in doing so we're going to be misprioritizing or misplacing, we're going to be being selfish. And so since we don't want to be selfish, we don't pray. But there is a very big difference between coming to someone, admitting your incapacity, admitting their full capacity, and humbly laying your needs and desires before them. There's a big difference between that idea and, between, and, and coming to someone or coming to God in this instance with a spirit of entitlement. Seeking to get things I want from him because he's supposed to give me the things that I want. The petition of godly men of years gone by has always been one of humility. Whenever I think of this, one of the passages that often comes to mind is a passage in 1 Kings chapter 8, verses 27 and 28. The king says, But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, the heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain thee. How much less this house that I have builded, Solomon praying here. Yet have thou respect unto the prayer of thy servant and to his supplication, O Lord my God, to hearken unto the cry and to the prayer which thy servant prayeth before thee today. Notice the way in which Solomon is praying here. God is acknowledged as being so much greater than man, and yet humbly coming before God and saying, God, we need you. We cannot do 
without you. Because without you, God, we are hopeless. Therefore, we ask you to have respect unto our petitions. Indeed, as our memory verse for the month echoes, for without him, we can do nothing. This is the heart of humble petition and prayer, an acknowledgement of just how much you and I need God day by day, moment by moment. We know God loves us. We know God wants us to bring our petitions before him. But it's sometimes uncommon for us because it requires a humble faith that God shall supply all my needs. And yet we know from Hebrews eleven six, without faith, it is impossible to please him. So we are called to make supplications. That is the idea of a petition, and it is an acknowledgement of our need. Second, we are called to make prayers. Here's that word prayer, and it is the common word for prayers. The idea, though, behind this concept of prayers, and you say, well, what, what is the word prayer, Pastor? If we have all of these other words, giving of thanks and supplication and intercession, and we have all of these other concepts surrounding prayer, uh, oftentimes when I teach on prayer and I give people uh, a, a simple acronym to remember or to think through the process of praying, uh, I use ACTS or ACTSI, A-C-T-S-I, Adoration, Confession, Thanksgiving, Supplication, Intercession. Uh, five elements of prayer. Sometimes I'll add an extra I in there for imprecatory if we want to go there as well as it is a, a type of prayer in Scripture where you're praying against your enemies. But the, the point, the idea is that all of those elements, adoration and confession and thanksgiving and supplication and intercession and imprecatory prayers, they're all prayer, right? Well, then what is this word prayer? What is the idea of the word itself? If we have all of these subsets of specificity as it relates to praying, what's this word, what, what, what good is this word prayer then? Well, it's a broad term that speaks of devotion, persistence, dedication, it is, it is a broad term that speaks of the exercise. Supplication and intercession and, and, and confession, these are elements of prayer. These are elements of the exercise. If I'm going to exercise, there's going to be various elements to that exercise. I'm going to start with stretching. Then after I stretch, then I'm going to perhaps do some cardio. And then maybe I'll do some resistance training. And I can go in any number of directions with my exercise, but it's all exercise, right? It is all a part of what it means to exercise. We could even have warm-up and cool-down. It's a part of exercise. All of these elements are a part of prayer, so when we see this idea of prayer happening or, or, or being bubbled up to the surface, the idea there is the exercise, the devotion, the persistence, the exercise of all of these other elements. And, and this brings up an important concept. Folks, prayer is hard work, isn't it? In the Garden of Gethsemane, Peter, James, and John were asked by Christ to watch and pray. Three times the Lord returned to find them asleep. And the scriptures tell us they were wearied emotionally, physically. Jesus called for his disciples in Matthew 7, verse 7, to ask, to seek, to knock, he calls for us to pray in Luke chapter 11, verse 8, with importunity. The idea of importunity being a boldness 
The word is actually kind of the idea of, of being brash, almost presumptuous, a boldness, being very forthcoming with our needs and our desires. He calls for us to be persistent in prayer in Luke 18, crying unto God night and day. Of course, we are called to pray without ceasing. This is the nature of prayer unto God. It's a process of reliance. It is, it is a exercise unto godliness. It is something that takes endurance. It is something that takes effort. It is something that must be deliberate. It requires a manner of devotion. Patient persistence. And so we have this word prayers. Our third word here, intercession. This is a unique word in the scriptures. It's not found anywhere else but in 1 Timothy in the Greek. And it's found twice in 1 Timothy, once being translated, as we see it here, intercessions, the other time simply being translated prayer. But if we go outside of the New Testament into classical Greek literature, this word is found there, and it carries the idea of drawing near or meeting with someone, having a conversation, meeting personally. It might be the difference between sending a text and actually sitting down for a meal and seeing someone face to face. It's the idea of drawing near to someone, of looking them in the eye, of petitioning them, of spending time with them. And so we see in this idea of intercessions an emphasis upon fellowship, on the very personal nature of prayer, that when we go to the Lord in prayer, we are conversing with God. We are meeting with God. There is communion. There is communication taking place. And that's an important part of prayer. And then finally, we have the idea here of giving of thanks. Coming to God with gratitude for his many blessings, for his listening ear, for his power both to hear and to deliver, to save. We think of this idea in Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 through 8. Be careful for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. That we are to be a thankful people. That our prayers, are, our exercise of prayer is to be... Uh, full of thanksgivings to God, not just for the prayers that he's answered, but for the confidence that we can have to come before him with these things, to lay them at his feet and to trust him with them. And all of this is directed in the assembly toward a particular end that we see here, that these supplications and prayers and intercessions and giving of thanks would be made for all men. Now that's quite a charge, isn't it? Now, the point of this is not that we would just raise up our blanket prayer, as sometimes our children might do, where they're praying and they say, God, I pray for everyone. I pray for everyone in the whole world. Well, I mean, that's fine, but the idea here is to pray for everyone, to pray for our sphere of influence, to pray for those things that we know, to not limit our prayers to a simple subset, to broaden those prayers, to pray for those that we know, to pray for circumstances that we know, to pray for situations that we know, to petition the Lord for those things that concern us. And he focuses this charge significantly in verse 2. In verse 2, he, he brings this down to a particular subset of people as a part of the broader uh, whole. He says, for kings and for all that are in authority, 
that we may lead peaceable, uh, quiet, a quiet and peaceable life, excuse me, in all godliness and honesty. So as Paul calls for the church to be in regular, persistent prayer, and that for all men, he focuses in here on a particular subset of all men, that being kings and all that are in authority. Now, as a church, Paul specifically focuses in here on us praying for civil leaders. This is the idea here. Take note of this. The passage is not speaking of praying for spiritual leaders, although that's a, a, a tremendously good thing to do, but praying for civil leaders, for kings and for all that are in authority. And notice the purpose that we, the church, might lead quiet and peaceable lives in godliness and honesty. We pray for our leaders so that God might work in their hearts, so that we might have favor in their eyes, so that we might live in peace before God and in honesty without our faith being encroached upon by the powers that be. Now, in the next couple of verses, we'll see how praying for our leaders might bring about this purpose in full. But let's talk about the intent of this prayer a little bit more. We live in what could probably rightly be considered the most religiously free country the world has ever known. Since our founding, this nation has more or less, depending on time and circumstance and such, provided an environment where people can follow their faith according to the dictates of their own conscience. This naturally led to some of the most spiritually fruitful times in all of history. We consider the revivals that took place throughout the Western world, the first and the second great awakenings. We think of the missionary movement, which took place within the context of really the, the afterglow of the things that took place in, in the United States and the establishment of freedom of religion in the Western world. Not all of it has been sourced in the United States, but most certainly the Western world empowered the ideals that have become foundational to the, the work that God was able to do throughout the 19th and 20th centuries. Really, until the advent of the United States Constitution and particularly the Bill of Rights, there was no place on earth where every faith system could operate freely. We know the original settlers came to the United States because they were fleeing religious persecution. That was their motivation for taking that tremendously dangerous journey across the Atlantic. And this because Europe had historically operated in one form or another under a church-state system where the church could levy the power of the state to enforce its dogmas and the state could levy the power of the church to enforce its politics. And to this end, the First Amendment of the Bill of Rights was truly a revolutionary idea in that it establishes explicitly that the government has no right to make a law that, that with respect to one's free exercise of religion, that the government has no right to encroach upon the free exercise of my religious faith. Now, this, of course, is going away today. As malicious and ignorant people interpret the First Amendment to mean that religion is not allowed in public rather than that religion is not to be infringed upon. Of course, this never would have come into the mind of the founders, but it does create a unique situation today. However, historically speaking, where we're going with this is the reality that in many ways, 
we, none of us, knows very well the context within which our religious freedom is deeply limited. Contrast this with nearly every other nation on earth throughout history. The U.S. began a trend in the West whereby government rule at the pleasure of the people, where government does not exist to confer rights upon people, but that the rights are acknowledged by the government to be beyond them, to be above them, and it, they, the government sees its role not as conferring rights upon people, but rather guarding the rights that God has given them. And this is how this nation very uniquely was founded. Before this philosophy, people lived and worshipped at the pleasure of their leaders. The state religion was the religion of the king, and the religion of the king was what people did. The people were told what to believe. Now, they couldn't uh, dictate what was in their heart, but they could dictate where they went to church, if they were allowed to have a Bible, if they were allowed to read that Bible. Those who did not fall in line with the monarch's dictates, morality, and religious expectation were persecuted, some more, some less. So within this system, the right to simply open the Bible, to read the Bible, to believe the Bible, to obey the Bible without interference was by no means guaranteed, which means God's people were forced to suffer for their faith, to worship behind closed doors, to worship in fear oftentimes, to defy their government in order to obey the scriptures, and so naturally accepting the consequences that came with that defiance. Now within this environment, think of the relief that would rest upon the heart of the believer when a sovereign ascended to the throne that was friendly to biblical Christianity or at least to the free exercise of religion. As long as he was willing to allow the free exercise of Christianity, what a difference that would make. What a weight would be lifted off the shoulders of churches and families when they could meet without fear. What a joy there would be to simply be able to live their lives according to the dictates of their conscience by the word of God without fear. We only know a very small taste of that, if even for most of us today. And that is what we pray for. We pray for leaders who, whether in consistency to their worldview or, or even in contradiction to their worldview, we pray for leaders who will allow the church to live quiet and peaceable lives of godliness and honesty. We just pray that God would give us leaders who would not interfere with our ability to follow the word of God. That's the object of our desire. That is the object of our prayers for them. That, that we would be left alone in many, as, as, as a, a, a brief summary. That God would give us leaders or would lay it upon the hearts of the leaders to let us live out our faith. Now we pray this prayer in the assembly nearly every week. And we do so in obedience to this particular passage of Scripture, which will also be our memory work for this month. We do so because we're commanded to do so. We do so because we dare not take for granted what we have. And we, we need to understand how quickly it can go away. We saw this year, 4th of July, come and go. And our Constitution has been in place for significantly more than 200 years. And we need to understand how very rare that is in history. 
that in most countries in the world, a constitution has not lasted more than a couple of decades before it's been abolished and some new system has been put in place. We are blessed. We should not take it for granted. Now, there's certain things that, that we, by God's grace and in this country, are allowed to do physically, right? We have a representative government. We can vote. We can, we can put people into office. We can depose people from office. We have that, that privilege, and all that's well and good, and, and we thank God for those freedoms and those liberties. But where is the most good going to be made? On our knees. In prayer. Praying for kings and for all that are in authority. That is what we are charged to do. Now, how does this come about? What is the object of these prayers? We want to be left alone. That idea, we want to be able to worship the Lord according to the dictates of our conscience and godliness and honesty and sincerity. We want to be able to do that. But notice where Paul takes this text in verses 3 and 4. He says, For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who will have all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. There's, there's two different ways that we can read this idea of, of God would have all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. We know um, from 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, that, it's not, that God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Uh, so this is a very true fact. But there's two different ideas here. One idea is, is this, that God would have leaders of nations to be saved. He would have all men to be saved, and that includes the leaders of nations. So we pray for them, and one of the things we certainly should pray for is that they would be saved. It's right. It's in, in agreement with the will of the Lord for us to pray for them for their salvation. But there's an, another concept here, and I believe a more, um, a more, more clear concept, or the concept that, that Paul is actually espousing here, which is this, that when the church is allowed to operate freely... So we pray for our leaders. We pray that our leaders would, would be um, friendly to our ability to operate freely, to live according to our conscience, to live publicly in godliness and in honesty, that we may live those peaceable lives. And you know what happens when we do that? People are drawn to the truth. People get saved. And when we, when we have to hide in the shadows... it does dim our light and it reduces our capacity to reach out to others, to be able to just talk to people on the street about Christ, to be able to hand them a tract, to be able to ask them if they know the Lord, to be able to engage someone at a park. You can't do that when you're in fear for your life. So you have to be more careful. I went to China for six weeks 11 years ago and we were there with a missionary, missionary Eddie Mills. He's come here before. He's visited our church. And he's there in, in uh, Hainan, which is the island just south of mainland China. And when we got there to China, one of the things he said, we were there teaching English, and he said, you can't just you know, evangelize openly on the streets here. And so we had to go through the process of what's often called relational evangelism. The process by which a person would end up coming to one of their underground churches was that they would have to um, first, you, you'd get to know the person. You'd meet them. They'd see that there's something different about you. They'd start to ask questions. Uh, you would tell them about your, your faith and what you believe, that you believe the Bible, that the Bible says these things. And then it would be a process of a personal discipleship, of helping them understand uh, what the Bible says, of seeing if there's actual interest, of gauging that true interest. And then at some point, probably at least, uh, I know with some, it was... To, it was a year or two into the process 
of, of working these relationships that you could finally invite them to come to the church and be a part of the church and, and see what church is about. There was a young lady who, when we were there 11 years ago for the first time, we met her and um, she was a part of, of the class that we were teaching. There was another young lady uh, down at Pensacola Christian where I went to school when I was in seminary. So this would have been three, three years later. Um, there was a, a young lady who went and, and went to China on the, with the same missionary and spent time with this same missionary in China. And when she came back, she was showing slides. And she showed slides of this young Chinese woman. I said, I know her. She, she met us for the first time that, that year. And she said, yeah, while I was there, we got to bring her to church for the first time. Three years later, and they got to bring her to church for the first time. It was so neat to see, but simultaneously you say, wow, how long did it take to get to the point where that fruit could be borne out in a society that's restricted? And this is the idea here. God would have all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So we need to pray for our leaders, not just that our leaders would be saved, but we need to pray for our leaders that they would allow us to live openly according to the dictates of our conscience, that we might reach others effectively with the gospel of Christ. Because where there's freedom, the gospel, where, where, the freedom, where, where the gospel is allowed to flourish, it will do its work in the hearts of men. Now we need to understand the natural balance as we pray for our leaders between the sovereignty of God and the free will of man. At Legacy Baptist Church, we understand from the scriptures that in God's sovereignty, he has given man free exercise of his will, both for and against the Lord. To this end, as we're praying for the salvation of others, uh, though we see passages such as this one in 2 Peter 3, 9, that tell us that God would have all men to be saved, we also understand that God has given man the freedom and the right to resist him. We furthermore understand that among leaders, salvation is a very unlikely thing. It is less likely for a leader to be saved than for what we might call the average man to be saved. This being testified to in 1 Corinthians 1, verses 26 and 27. Paul says, For ye see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, and God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. And it continues. The scriptures warn us that there are not many who are wise, not many who are mighty, not many who are noble who come to a saving knowledge of the truth. We would understand that not because they have any spiritual disadvantage, but because those who are noble in this world must reconcile the reality that their nobility gets them nowhere with God to be saved. And they have to be willing to pick up their cross and follow the Lord, even if that means a loss of status. Those who are mighty in the world must reconcile first with the fact that they are not strong enough to, to, to get to God. That, that their might does not give them value in the eyes of God and that they must pick up their cross and follow God and that means if God chooses to make them weak, that, that, that's God's right. Those who are wise in this world must understand that their natural wisdom is not going to be enough to get them to God and that they must, have, they, they must, they must uh, learn, perhaps to unlearn some things in order to get to God. And this is not easy for those who are wise, who are noble, who are mighty. To this end, 
because they are in one sense deeper invested in this world, because the world system has been good to them, because they're mighty, because they're noble, because they're wise, they have more to give up at the point that it's time to accept Christ as their Savior. God may not ask them for it. He may not take it away from them, but it has to be on the altar because we have to take up our cross and follow Him. So we read the words of our Lord in Luke 18, verses 24 through 27, as it relates to the rich man. And when Jesus saw that he was very sorrowful, speaking of the rich young ruler, he said, How hardly shall they that have riches enter into the kingdom of God? For it is easier for a camel to go through a needle's eye than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. And they that heard it said, Who then can be saved? And he said, The things which are impossible with men are possible with God. How hardly, Jesus says, not here meaning with great difficulty, actually, but rather how unlikely it is that rich men enter into the kingdom of heaven. He says, that being said, what is impossible with man is possible with God. And this is why we pray. Because what is impossible with man is possible with God. That that politician that that civic leader, that that influencer, materially speaking, it is impossible that such a man would leave all to follow Christ. But what is impossible with man is possible with God. And we see such examples in the scripture, particularly in the Old Testament. We see Nebuchadnezzar humbling himself before the Lord, writing uh, that, that great treatise on his faith in the Lord in Daniel 4. We see the frustration of the king of Syria in 2 Kings 6 because God was using the prophet Elisha to thwart the military efforts against Israel, acknowledging the Lord there to some degree. We read in Acts chapter 12, verse 23, how the angel of the Lord killed Herod because he would not acknowledge God. So we see these ideas in Scripture where man either does or, or sovereigns either do or do not acknowledge the power of God. And it all culminates with a principle found in Proverbs 21.1. The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. As the rivers of water, he turneth it whithersoever he will. At the end of the day, kings come, kings go, God does not go anywhere. At the end of the day, God is sovereign over sovereigns. He's the king of kings. At the end of the day, God's will will not be frustrated even by those in power. Verses 5 and 6. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. Keep this within the context which we find it. God would have all men to be saved. God would have all men to come to the knowledge of the truth for this reason, that there is only one God and mankind is hopelessly separated from that God in his natural condition. And there is only one mediator that bridges the gap between man and God, and that is the man Christ Jesus. So Jesus said in John fourteen six, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. The only way I can have a personal relationship with God, the only way I can be brought into fellowship with God to have eternal fellowship with him in heaven is by being sinlessly perfect, 100% holy, because God is holy and a holy creator, a holy God, cannot have fellowship with sinful man. And that's a problem, as we talked about even as we shared the gospel last week, because I am sinful and you are sinful. Thus Jesus comes in. The man Christ Jesus, the mediator between the Father and me 
who was a perfect man, not sinful, 100% holy, in fellowship with God, who went to the cross, who bore our shame, who bore the wrath of God, who bore the weight of man's sin, paid the debt, satisfied the wrath of God against sin, making himself a ransom for all, as we see here. Then raising from the dead a testimony of God's divine acceptance of Christ's work. And anyone who comes to Christ, who accepts that he is the Savior of the world, anyone who comes knowing his own incapacity to be made right with God by his own efforts or his own strength or his money or his wisdom or his power or his goodness, knowing that he is hopelessly separated from God through his sin, believing rather that Jesus Christ alone died to save him from his sin, placing his full faith and trust in that gift, they'll be saved. They'll be born again. They will be ransomed from their sin, brought into fellowship with God through Christ's righteousness, not his own. And so Jesus stands as the one and only mediator between God and man. He paid the debt, and he holds the right to relieve that debt for all who will come to him by faith. Now, what does it mean that this reality is to be testified in due time. Statement is somewhat obscure. It may speak to the time and the manner of Christ's coming, reflecting that clear testimony. So in other words, that Jesus is the mediator between God and man. We see that today by faith. We see that darkly. We see that as a testimony of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God is the earnest of our inheritance, right? The down payment, as it were, of our inheritance. So we see that, that evidence of him, but then there's coming a time in due time when that full mediation will be accomplished, when Christ will come, he will bring us unto himself, we will be declared righteous, we will be fully justified, that that adoption is going to take place, and it's possible that that is the idea here. It may also speak of the season and the manner in which God ordains for the testimony of Christ to enter into the hearts of men. That Jesus Christ paid his once-for-all sacrifice on the cross for our sin, and then in the hearts of men in due time, in God's time and in due season, it is testified in the hearts of men. I don't like that explanation as much as the first one, but both of them are valid as it relates to the text. And then Paul speaks, as he did in chapter 1, to his own relationship to that truth. He did this in chapter 1 where he brought these truths in and he talked about himself and his relationship to them. We see this again in verse 7. He says, Whereunto I am ordained a preacher and an apostle. I speak the truth in Christ and lie not, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and verity. So it was unto these truths that Paul was ordained a preacher and an apostle. And he brings the point back to sound doctrine, that he is a teacher of the Gentiles, both in faith and in truth, that he was ordained by God to be the apostle to the Gentiles. He is called unto this, point, this purpose, that he is to share the gospel with the Gentile world. And notice how this aligns with the idea of prayer. At this point, of course, there were many hostile governments. There were many hostile even city-states uh, under, under the umbrella of the Roman government to these churches. We read in Thessalonians about the, the tremendous amount of persecution. In Ephesus, there was persecution. In Philippi, there was persecution. In Lystra and Iconium and Derbe, there was persecution. They were being persecuted and oftentimes at the approval of the governors. And so we see this, this range of arguments here. Pray for all men, especially pray for your leaders. Pray that they would allow you to live without persecuting you because God would have all men to be saved. And as they're not persecuting you, that's going to open the door for the gospel to spread freely. 
because there is one mediator between God and man, and that's Jesus Christ, which means we need to preach the gospel because that is the only way that people are going to get saved, folks. They need to hear about Jesus. That's the only way they're going to be saved. They're not just going to receive it by osmosis. Faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And he says, then I'm ordained a preacher of that. I'm, I'm, I'm a preacher. And I'm, I'm, I'm an apostle. And I'm sent to the Gentiles to preach this message. And so he had a lot invested in these leaders allowing for the gospel to go forth because that gave his message freedom to flourish. Verse 8. I will therefore that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. So Paul heightens this command saying, don't just pray for everyone, but pray in every place. In verse 1, pray for all men. In verse 8, pray everywhere. Constant prayer. Not that every second of every day is on your knees. No one can afford to do that. We have to live. But living in a constant exercise of prayer, living in a constant context of prayer for leaders, for the salvation of souls. And notice the manner of this prayer. He says, lifting up holy hands. This was and indeed is still in many places a common practice. The idea of turning your palms up to heaven and lifting them up before the Lord in prayer. Uh, it's a practice today that we've associated with some of the more charismatic elements of, of the church. And yet the, the symbolism there is that your hands, are, your, your, your hands are open unto the Lord. You're showing your need for him. And uh, it's almost in, in contrast to the idea of raising a fist, which is defiance, raising an open hand, is need. It is supplication. It is, it is humility. Second, without wrath or doubting. Jesus spoke in Matthew 5.23 of those who would bring gifts to the altar. And what he said in Matthew 5.23 is that if you are bringing your alms before the altar and you realize that there is something between you and a brother, that you should leave your gift at the altar, that you should go and be reconciled unto your brother and afterwards finish worshiping. And so this idea here is that as we pray together, as we pray everywhere, as we pray for all men, and remember, this is when you come together, first of all, first of all, do these things, that there would be no anger, no argument, no disunity in the body, that we would be united. No wrath, no doubting, no violent indignation, no hesitation or argument. In this we find a truth well stated in Psalm 66, verse 18. If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. Notice the word used here is to regard iniquity in your heart. This speaks of the man who is living in open sin or open rebellion, regarding it, not just that he has done something, but he is regarding that sin. He is holding on to it. He is in open obstinance. There's a big difference in my relationship with my children when they have done something wrong but they don't really know it or, or, or we, it has not come to light yet. And when they know they've done something wrong and they are hardening their hearts against me. There's a big difference relationally in those two things. This is the man who knows and is hardening his heart against his own sin, making no attempt to be right with God, but then coming to God with the expectation of favor or blessing. The Church of Christ cannot expect to walk into the throne of God in rebellion and apathy and find the Lord attentive to our petitions. This is why David said that God does not despise a broken and a contrite heart. It is this heart. It is the broken and a contrite heart. It is the humble heart expressed through lifting up of holy hands, expressed through devoted, persistent, humble petitions. 
it is that heart that God regards. Four applications from our exposition today as we close. Number one, the church needs to pray in steadfast continuance. Let us never forget that Paul instructs us to pray for all men first of all. Prayer cannot be an afterthought in our assembly. It is for this reason that in every service we have some element of focused prayer, and it's important. This is essential because if anything spiritual is going to get accomplished, it's going to be done by the means of spiritual exercise, by the means of prayer. We spoke already about the essential concept of asking, seeking, and knocking. Let's read Jesus' words together from Matthew chapter 7 in this regard. Verses 7 through 11, Jesus says, Ask, and it shall be given you. Seek, and ye shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. For everyone that asketh receiveth, and he that seeketh findeth. And to him that knocketh, it shall be opened. Or what man is there of you, whom if his son ask bread, will he give him a stone? Or if he ask a fish, will he give him a serpent? If ye then, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your Father, which is in heaven, give good things to them that ask him? Ask, seek, knock. We do not serve a God who is unable to meet our needs. We do not serve a God who is unable to address our requests. And we do not serve a God who is unwilling to meet our needs or address our requests. Now, again, we're not going to get today into a full lesson on prayer. I taught on it not too long ago on a Tuesday night. I've preached several series on prayer. They're online. I'd encourage you to go back and listen to them if you've never heard them. But we understand that prayer is not something that informs God of our needs, right? Instead, it is several things. Prayer is a method of seeking the will of God and through this having our hearts and will conform to God's heart and will. Prayer is a method of moving the heart of God to bring about those things which are within the scope of His desires for us but with which He, he waits for our humble petitions. It is a method of reliance upon the provision of God to keep our hearts and minds focused upon God's promises and our reliance upon Him and acknowledgement of His goodness and of His control. And with this call to pray comes many warnings. That prayer is not some way just to get the things that we want, right? We already talked just briefly in James about this idea. You, you ask and you have not because you ask amiss that you may consume it upon your lusts. God is not... Santa Claus. He is not here for us to give our wish list and then as long as we're good enough, he's going to give us what we want. He's not a lucky rabbit's foot that we carry around with us in some medallion or some good luck charm so that when push comes to shove and tough times come, I can flee to fate to bail me out. This is not God. Prayer is not a manipulation tactic to con God into giving us things which we want. That as long as I use, invoke the phrase in Jesus' name, which we've talked about, as long as I invoke the phrase in Jesus' name, God has to give me what I want. doesn't work that way. That's not what prayer is. Prayer is not about bringing things about in the way I want or the way I expect. It's not about wrapping God around my desires. Prayer is about humbly petitioning God the God of all flesh, to work His sovereign power in the scope of my circumstances. Prayer has power. Prayer moves the heart of God. Prayer changes things. 
Prayer is not just an exercise of the will. Prayer is not just an exercise of emotions. Prayer is effective. But we have to do it God's way. To this end, prayer, when done as the Lord prescribes, is not just important to the church. It is essential, indispensable. Without it, there's no effectiveness. There's no power. I may put an awful lot of work into this church. I may put an awful lot of work into my sermons and make them sound good, and I can be funny. I can be funny sometimes. Not often, but it happens. I can do all of those things and make it, make it sound good and appeal strongly to people, but if there's no power of the Spirit behind it, it will not accomplish the purposes of God. It might inspire you. It might excite you. It might give you a shot in the arm. But the only power that it can truly have unto anything spiritual is through God. And if that's the case, then I need to be praying. If you want to see, uh, if you want to see work done... If you're out evangelizing your friends, neighbors, if you're out evangelizing your family, don't just do the work of of beating the streets, of knocking on doors, of handing out literature. That's all well and good. But you need to be praying. You need to be praying. There's a work that is being done in the heavenlies. The Spirit of God is your partner in that work. You need to be praying. The church needs to pray night and day, week in, week out. Steadfast continuance, humility of spirit, eager anticipation, thanksgiving for the goodness of our God. Point two, the church needs to pray for our earthly leaders. First of all, Paul says pray. Pray for all men. Pray for kings and for those in authority. We've spoken already about the unique blessings and virtues of our system of government. Things we experience, freedoms we enjoy most of which the Christians around the world have never known. As I've mentioned, another one of those blessings is that we get to choose our own leaders. Voting isn't a right, as many are saying today. It's a privilege. It's a privilege to go to the ballot box to influence those who rule over us. Very rare in history for that privilege to be done in integrity. And as with all of these freedoms, this rarity can introduce a manner of spiritual apathy. I can think that my job as far as influencing politics is done at the ballot box. My job as it it relates to influencing politics is done in canvassing, working for some campaign or whatever the case may be. And I'm not saying any of those things are wrong. Don't get me wrong. But for whatever degree we have influence over our leaders, know this. Paul was writing to a group of people that had zero influence over their leaders. They didn't go to ballot boxes. They had a Caesar in Rome who saw himself as God. And then they had people appointed over regions, generally politically expedient appointments, who you know, who you've done a favor for, That was how they were led. And Paul says, if you want to see things done, you need to pray. You need to leave it with the Lord. And while I'm not at all in any way, shape, or form saying you should not be politically active, if you want to do that, that's that's fine. 
Not like you need my approval anyway. But don't allow political activity to be your hope. Don't allow the outcome of elections to be your hope. If you spend more time canvassing for some politician than you do praying for your leaders, you might be out of balance. Because where the job is going to be done is on our knees. Praying for God's mercy. Seeking God's help. That's the reason why we spend a portion of every morning praying for our leaders every Sunday morning. That God would confirm them in righteous decisions, restrain their hand from unrighteous decision. Uh, that, that the many in our government who are not believers would, would be saved. That we would have a preservation of the freedoms that we hold dear. Because this is uncommon. What we have here is uncommon. And if it's going to be spared and saved, yes, part of that's going to be us getting out and voting. Yes, a part of that's going to be us being active. But do you know what? what's really going to make the difference? Politics is downstream of culture. And culture is downstream of the church. If there was a revival in the church and we started reaching the lost for Christ, people started getting saved, getting added to the church and being discipled, culture would change. And then as culture is changed, politicians will change too. Culture is downstream of the church. Politics is downstream of culture. The most effect we can have on politics, seeing the church revived and seeing people saved. That's what we ought to be praying for. That's what we ought to be working toward. The governments of this world rest under the influence of the prince of the power of the air. That's Satan. Wherever there is a concentration of power, money, and earthly fame, you can rest assured Satan is going to be there because that is his domain. We should not wonder when those in authority seek for a concentration of power and of money and of fame despite uh, all other things. We should not wonder when they despise Christ who came with a message of meekness and of love. To this end, we find the great need to invoke God's help because 1 John 3.13 says, Marvel not, my brethren, if the world hates you. To stir the heart of God to work in time and in history to raise up men and women who will allow the church of the true and living God to live quiet and peaceable lives, not only for ourselves, but so that we can have the right and the freedom to get the gospel out to others without fear. So that we can see people saved and added to the church so that then things can change. And if we want to be a happy people, we need righteous rulers. Proverbs 29, verse 2. When the righteous are in authority, the people rejoice, but when the wicked bear rule, the people mourn. So we need to pray. We need to pray in steadfast continuance. We need to pray for our earthly leaders. Number three, the church needs to pray for the souls of all men to be saved. Salvation is a spiritual work. Never once throughout my entire life will I ever save anyone from a sinner's hell. Never once will you ever save anyone from a sinner's hell. You may be instrumental in leading someone. You might be a messenger. You might till the field of their heart. You might sow the seed. You might water that seed. You might bring 
uh, reap the seed, but it is God that brings forth the increase. And we all have a part to play. We all have a part to play. You may not have had the opportunity yet to this point in your life to truly lead many people to the Lord. But as you live and as you're consistent and as you teach, uh, teach others and as you have answers for the hope that lies in you, you might be clearing a field, uh, the heart, uh, a field of someone's heart, of, of the rocks, of the stony hearts uh, of, of uh, obstinance or of rebellion or of disbelief. You might be the one to plant that seed in their heart of just that little bit of faith. You might be the one to water a seed that someone else planted. You may never have been the one that got to actually reap that harvest. But either way, the whole thing is God doing the work and you get to be a part of it. Thank God for that. So we need to be praying that God would give us those opportunities and we need to be looking for them and taking them. Salvation of souls is a spiritual work. It's not a material work. It's not a physical work. It's not a temporal work. Seeing people saved is not about what's happening in a person's brain. It's about what's happening in his spirit. People don't get saved because they know facts about Jesus. We all know this pretty well. They get saved because they've placed their faith in what they've heard about Jesus. So if the work of winning people to Christ is a spiritual work, then it's not just done by putting our boots on the ground. Although it's important. I'm not saying it's not. We've got to be praying. We've got to be praying. That's the point here today. Pray for unbelievers that they would be saved. Finally, number four, the church needs to pray in agreement one with another. Pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. It's an interesting exhortation, is it not? Pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. Pray without wrath. Pray without hesitation or argument. It's not the only letter where we're exhorted unto such a thing. I've quoted several times now James 4, which says, Ye have not because ye ask not, ye ask and receive not because ye ask amiss. But the beginning of that chapter starts in a unique way. James says this in James 4, verse 1, From whence come wars and fightings among you? Come they not hence even of your lusts that war in your members? Ye lust and have not, ye kill and desire to have. Ye fight in war, yet ye have not because ye ask not. Ye ask and receive not because ye ask amiss that ye may consume it upon your lust. James here is speaking to a group of believers. And he says, from whence come wars and fightings among you? Come they not hence even of your lusts that warn your members? James writes to the twelve tribes scattered abroad, Christian Jews, By implication here, it seems very likely that James is not writing about geopolitics as he's saying, where are these wars coming from? We know that nations fight for these reasons. You're not going to exhort nations to pray. Nations are, are, are godless by and large. James is not writing here to talk about how nations need to operate. He's writing about the church. Where do the wars and the fightings come among you? Where are the divisions among you? Aren't they coming from lust in your members? Members of the body warring against one another? Because you're all being selfish. James says you kill and desire to have and cannot obtain. Perhaps the idea there being going back to, to Jesus' teachings about hating a brother in your heart. 
speaking of hating brothers in Christ, a desire to have, fighting and warring. He says, yet ye have not, because ye ask not. They aren't receiving because they aren't asking. They're asking and not receiving because they're being selfish. They're asking amiss. They're trying to consume upon their lusts. They are being selfish in the body. They are not unified in the body. There is wrath and doubting in the body. And because there's wrath and doubting in the body, they're not having their prayers answered. Because there's wrath and doubting in the body, they're not having any power. Because there's selfishness in the body, they're seeking to consume it upon their own lusts. They're not finding any effectiveness. Disunity. Hindering their capacity to effective prayer. I believe that's what this is saying. There's many a good man that disagrees with me, and that's fine. Paul exhorts the believers in Ephes- in, of Ephesus, which is the same place where Timothy is when Paul writes 1 Timothy. And he says this in chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that ye walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called, with all lowliness and meekness, with longsuffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. The unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. What happens when we fail at this goal? What happens when we fail to be unified? What happens when we fall short? Paul tells us in Galatians chapter 5, verses 14 through 16, all the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. But, he says, if ye bite and devour one another, take heed that ye be not consumed one of another. This I say then, walk in the spirit and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. When we begin to bite and devour one another, when there are fightings and wars among us, when we are following our lust, when we are fighting for our own side, when we are seeking to get our way, when we are arguing with one another, when we are biting and devouring one another, Paul says, take heed that you be not consumed one of another. We're going to consume ourselves. We're going to just tear ourselves to bits and be left with nothing but pieces. So what do we do then? We stay unified. And prayer is a good gauge of this. Can we pray together? Are we praying together? Are we seeking that unity? Are we finding that bond? Unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Praying in agreement, without wrath, without doubting. We will not always agree with each other, doctrinally or theologically. We will not always agree with each other's perspectives on things. We will not always agree with each other's personalities. But there is unity in the Spirit rooted in a common love for truth. And where that unity is found, the church can be thriving, healthy, and effective. And the question arises as we close in our time together. How is your prayer life? I didn't teach on how to pray, all of the ins and outs of prayer, and I'm, I'm reticent to start another mini-series, so we're not going to do that right now. We're not going to go there. But how's your prayer life? Is prayer just an afterthought to you? Is it that thing you run to when you've got nowhere else to go? Or does it manifest in a steadfast continuance? Are you praying for our leaders? 
Are you praying that our country would maintain a freedom by which we are able to function? Are you praying for all men to be saved as you do the work of evangelism? Are you undergirding the work that you're doing physically with prayer? Have you become so distracted with the physical and the material aspects of life or of politics or even of ministry that you've forgotten to tap into the spiritual power that undergirds all of it? Are we unified in this church? Are we praying in unity? When you come together with other believers to pray, are you in unity? Or is there wrath and doubting? May God help us, as a church particularly, as we consider these sermons on the assembly, to be this kind of a church that prays everywhere for all men, without wrath, without doubting, giving supplications and intercessions and prayers and thanksgivings to be unified, to pray for the souls of men, to pray for peace in our time, that God may be glorified. Let's close in prayer. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.